0: All right. Once again, I'm grateful to uh, our elders for the opportunity to get up here and to bring you the Word of God. You know, sometimes when you see an opportunity like this, um, you know, my wife grew up in a Baptist home. I grew up Roman Catholic. And um, coming to a message like this, let me just say that it's almost like getting into the ring with your own blood brother, you know you don't you don't want to bust him up, but once he starts swinging at you, you know it's on from there. And I think it's it's one of those issues that I will say this that I say that because I have some Presbyterian brothers that I love dearly, and one of them's been like a father figure to me. The other one's been a really close brother to my heart. He just graduated from Westminster, and they know how I feel on this issue. But I think the longer You know, I went through some islands at one time um, in our old church, and those brothers really helped me get through those times. So it's been a while since I've touched on this issue, but in in studying, I can say that I'm definitely a militant Baptist, um, and I'm not going to shy away from that tonight. And I really pray that uh, the Lord will bless the hearing of that to you as well as to them. So if we can open in a word of prayer, uh, I'd like to get into it. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to bring your word to your people, Lord. I pray that you would cause my words to come out very clear, very crisp, that you would open hearts and minds, Lord, that we would see that this is not a gospel issue, but it can be. And we pray that for those who make it a gospel issue, that you would show them their error and uh, grant them faith and have them fly to Jesus. And pray, Father, that we would... um, understand, and that you would give me boldness to speak the truth, and that you would cause me to lift up your son, use me to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so, like I said, this task, it's not a, you know, you can say so many different things, but I will say this, that as much of a Baptist as I am, I do believe that baptism is not, um, for us, you know, it's not a salvation issue, Right. I really like what John Bunyan's position on baptism was when it came to membership. Open membership is a position, I believe, if someone was baptized and, you know, they were Presbyterian, I believe the the prerequisite to come into a church should be repentance. the same for baptism. It should be repentance and faith, right? I don't think we should go to war with our brothers and try to make this an evangelistic type thing. But at the same time, If you hear some of the things that are out there, especially most recently, there's some really bad things in the church when it comes to infant baptism. And I believe those things need to be confronted because they're a danger. They're a poison to the body of Christ. But yet again, there's some good men on the other side that I admire and look up to very much. But I believe they're wrong on this issue. And I think we're going to get into why. I want to speak to the errors of baptism as we start out. You know, let me begin with a brief polemic on those who oppose us on this issue. So let me define what polemics are. They're strong verbal attack on the opposing side's argument or position. It's not an ad hominem attack. It's not where you attack the person. You're attacking the position. And in doing so, I believe that we should do it very strongly, very aggressively. And I'll tell you why. I'm a huge fan of polemics. Because in spiritual warfare, we must identify the distinction between truth and error. And we must do so very crisp and very logically and very sound. And so when we develop and we analyze what we're being faced with, we we develop a tactic to expose what error is. And this only works, of course, if we have truth on our side, right? But... There's this other dynamic when polemics can be used. And this is very mysterious to me, but I've seen people who who exercise polemics who don't have truth on their side and they're very successful because they know how to detail their arguments and a strong polemic, a well thought out one, can even be a problem for us as Christians when we're trying to trying to break down truth. Like you listen to debates, there are a lot of clever, well thought-through arguments that can that can knock us off, of course, if we don't know what we're doing when we're engaging in some of these discussions. So I myself, like I said, I come out of an infant Baptist background as a Roman Catholic. I was christened as a child, and I was baptized into the Roman Catholic Church. So as we discuss this issue of paedo-baptism, I want to define paedo-baptists are people who baptize infants. So... Roman Catholicism, there's an umbrella of paedo-baptism where people believe different things but when you start getting into this discussion it really boils down to this babies shouldn't be baptized and we're going to see that very clearly Like so, but like I said, they, they believe different things as a Roman Catholic, I was always taught that uh, the original sin from Adam would be eradicated the minute the water hit me as as a baby. So I didn't have that sin anymore in my mind, you know, and it opened the door for what was called mortal sins and venial sins. And that's a whole nother sermon. We don't have time to get into that tonight. But, you know, when you really break it down, the New Testament, the Bible itself just doesn't teach this. And it's heresy. And I'll tell you exactly uh, why we need to get away from stuff like this even when it comes to our brothers who hold to this from a covenantal perspective. I'll give you an example. If we look in Colossians chapter 2, before we get started into the catechism question, in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, a paedobaptist baptist will argue that this is a demonstration of why circumcision in the Old Covenant is a transferal or a continuation Or the continuity of the two testaments that we are to continue in baptizing infants. So pay close attention here. It says, "In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the, the the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism." in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So in him, that is Christ, Paul told the church in Colossae that they were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So clearly right away we see a problem with the paedobaptist baptist position. If a circumcision is without hands, then why are they comparing it to the old covenant? where circumcision was done with human hands, okay? I don't think any of the paedo I know are willing to say that God himself circumcised infants on the eighth day. They know that those were done by human beings. And so this is imagery we see in Colossians here. And they're taking imagery to be taken as literal, and that's a big, big problem. And they should know better. They should know better. Most of these brothers are very sharp, very intellectual, spirit, you know, filled believers who know the difference in, in their hermeneutic, but yet they still make the same error. Circumcision cannot remove sin, just like baptism cannot remove sin. In Galatians chapter six, verse 15, it says, For in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision that avails anything. But a new creature In Christ so if we know that circumcision physical circumcision can't do this why do they make this connection well it's pretty simple because they ignore the text they ignore what's being said in Colossians so when they make these connections here they're really out of line like if you look what the verses actually say it says right here at the at the beginning of verse 12 it says in him you were also raised with him through faith In the working of God, well, how does faith involve baptizing a child? A child can't exercise faith, right? And then it's called the circumcision of Christ, not the circumcision that's done in the Old Covenant. Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter 2 when he said, He is not a Jew as one outwardly, but he is a Jew as one inwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh But he is a a Jew, excuse me, he's a Jew's one inwardly, where circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So these are the kinds of texts that they just kind of ignore what's being said. And they just kind of insert their own really understanding of what their tradition has told them to, to insert. So like I was saying, Pado baptists some are Christians, some are Christians. And I think we need to really, get a good grasp on this. Some of them are our brothers and sisters in Christ. The ones who maintain that baptism is a covenant sign and not a part of salvation, those are the ones who are converted, right? And there are many denominations that we should mark and consider that they're a mission field. They're not not believers. They're not brothers and sisters. And I'm going to give you a list that I'm not really meaning for this list to be exhaustive, but Of course, there could be some of these people that are saved in spite of, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Episcopalians, liberal Presbyterians, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, they're kind of under the same umbrella to me, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ. You know, a lot of these people believe in baptismal regeneration. And when you listen to some Presbyterians who know better, a lot of them sound like they believe in baptismal regeneration. So... But on the other hand, there are Pado baptists who are rock solid. You know, my favorite Pado baptist teacher, you know, R.C. Sproul, he had a brilliant mind. He's with the Lord now. He was wrong on baptism when he was on this earth, but he's right on it now. You know, I think, you know, when you get sanctified in heaven, it's like you're going to argue with God over these issues, right? So they're brilliant minds God has blessed this church with. John Gill, A.W. Pink, I believe Pink was a Baptist. My favorite Baptist, John Bunyan. You know, so as I complete my thoughts on this issue and we move into the catechism, I just want to say that eisegesis, when we look at how the Bible is interpreted, right? I think to arrive at infant baptism, you have to exercise eisegesis. And what do I mean by that? It's where you pour in, when you instruct the actual text that's in front of you, when you impose onto the text the meaning of what you believe the scripture is saying. And that's, that's not the right way to interpret. We're to use eisegesis. Where we're to take the text that God has breathed out in front of us. Exegesis, excuse me, thank you. We're to use exegesis and to draw out what God has laid in front of us and what he breathed out through the apostles and the prophets. And we're to draw out the meaning from what is right in front of us. Now, sometimes that can involve, involve like a historical background which we'll see here in a minute, a lot of our Pado Baptist brothers ignore. They ignore even first century context. And it's important because God tells us not to add to his word. And I believe if you do not add to his word, you'll end up a Baptist. So moving on, let's discuss what baptism is. Question number 98, who is baptism to be administered to? Answer, baptism is to be administered to all Those who actually profess repentance towards God, faith in, and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ and to none other. The statement in the catechism couldn't be more clear. None other. That's who is to receive baptism. Those who actually profess repentance towards God. And each one of these verses directly demonstrates that. It is only regenerate people, that is, people who are born again, to, who profess Jesus faith in Jesus to be baptized. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. Metaneo is the Greek word for repentance. And it's a change of mind that always logically precedes baptism in the scriptures. And this change of mind tells us that baptism is for believers only. The syntax or arrangement or of this text flows in a way that makes it difficult to interpret Because we believe that once we see a change in the inner man, then we just see baptism. But there's a little bit of a problem here. We can't just conclude that's the issue on this text because it says, repent, be baptized, and then you shall receive the Holy Spirit. But that's not actually how God works in salvation because regeneration precedes faith. So if we just go with what we see in this text, well, there's an order here. Repent, be baptized, and then you'll get the Spirit. Well, a lot of our synergistic or non-Calvinistic brothers will take a text like this and say, see, you get the Holy Spirit after you repent, after you believe, but that's not actually how God works in salvation. And when you think of a lot of people, of our opponents on this issue, the people who say baptism is necessary for salvation, they'll play around with this text too because of the arrangement of the way the words flow, right? Right? And this is why hermeneutics matter. You know, they really do. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, doesn't remove original sin. Like I said earlier, and a lot of people who teach this, they're just dead wrong. And it's not, it's not like there aren't texts that clearly tell us how to interpret. If we look at 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul said to the church at Corinth, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not without wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Even in John 6, 47, it states that most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So these verses demonstrate that the apostle didn't consider baptism as high as a priority as the preaching of the gospel because one is necessary for salvation and the other one isn't. And the Lord plainly declared that the one who believes has eternal life. Nothing mentioned about baptism at all because it's not essential to salvation. There is one baptism that is necessary for salvation, and you need to understand that, okay? And we need to be very clear on that text in Romans chapter six. And this baptism is known as the baptism of the spirit or the new birth or regeneration, okay? When Jesus said, unless a man is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, you can't enter in something that you can't see, right? You have to have eyes to see and God has to give you that. So the baptism of the spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration when God raises the dead sinner to life so that they will see their need for Christ. All right. And so in Romans chapter six, beginning in verse three, it says, or do you not know that as many of us as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So the baptism of the Spirit here that takes place is in the life of the Christian. It's how you become a Christian. God regenerates you. And unlike Physical baptism, a baptism of the spirit or the new birth, is a part of our deliverance of us being saved. Physical baptism that we receive as a command is to demonstrate our union, how we've been brought together with Christ. So our going down into the water symbolizes the work that God has done in, in us by bringing us to life and coming out of the water and then walking in newness of life it's a picture of the work that God has done. Okay? So we got to be very careful when we handle a text like that to understand it's not talking about physical baptism, it's talking about regeneration. So, circling back to Acts 2, and this is really critical right here. In verse 39, okay, we saw a minute ago that the command to repent and be baptized. In verse 38 and how the arrangement of words can't always govern our interpretation. I want us to look and and think about how verse 39 really, really plays a part in our understanding here. Okay. It's about God saving his bride in Acts 2:38 and 39. All right. Especially 39. Look here. It says the promise. It interprets it for us here. Our Paedo Baptist brothers always emphasize the promises of you and your children. And then they get off into this tangent about children are a part of the covenant. That's why you gotta baptize your kids. And I'm like, well, what promise are we talking about? What promise are we talking about here? Are we just talking about to your physical children? Is that it? Is this, this promise that if you do these things, your kids are, are going to you're going to make your children part of the elect of God. No, it's not that. And how do we know? Well, first of all, you know, because most Pato Baptists never keep reading. They just say the promise, the promises of you and your children. See, and they stop right there. But what else needs to be said? What does the verse say? And to all who are far off, what does that mean? Well, it means Gentiles, because who was this written to? It was written to Jews. Does anybody know in Acts chapter 2, it talks about all the wonderful tongues they were speaking, all the distinct Jews that were there. That's who the context is written to. So as many as the Lord will call, this is the effectual call, which is why we should only interpret this promise as to the elect of God, Okay. Now, how do I know that? Can I just get up here and just say that and that makes it true? No, I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you why we should only baptize believers. Everybody, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to park here for a minute. Really, really important stuff here. All right. Beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you are without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the father. So in the initial fulfillment of the Old Testament kingdom promises here, we see the apostle turns his attention to a old covenant distinction that was presently being broken down and done away with in the new covenant. He says in verse 11, remember you who were once Gentiles in the flesh, addressing the non-Jew audience first. Paul reminds them of their previous state of hopelessness apart from Christ and that the Gentiles were strangers to the covenant of promise. So keep that in your mind for a second as we go through this. As heathen, they were once afar off and he wanted them to remember that they were without hope in the world. This meant that they were strangers, right? They weren't a part of the covenant. That's what he was clearly telling them. Because remember earlier in the chapter, what did he tell them all? He said, we too were by nature what? Children, Children of wrath, even as the others. And then he tells them that God was rich in mercy. Now he's expanding on that here. He tells them they were strangers, that they were once afar off, these Gentiles, but they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the distinction of Jew and Gentile was eradicated. Why? Because God broke down the middle wall of separation. So think about that. When a barrier is broken down, what's the imagery here? What's it communicating? Barrier broken down. What happens? When you, if there's a barrier in between my hands and my hands come together. Marriage, union. A union, closeness. Interaction. Interaction, covenant, okay? One body, one people, one body making from the two one new man, Jew and Gentile. So when you think about what our Presbyterian brothers get wrong here is when he came and preached to those who are far off, Gentiles, to those who are near Jews, it's the same language in Acts chapter two, verse 39. But they neglect to mention that. That's the problem. They just say, oh, the promises of you and your children. Yeah, let's get a meaning there. Let's let scripture interpret what the meaning is. Okay, Gentiles are far off. Jews are near. As many as the Lord God will call. As I said earlier, speaking about the elect. Okay, so when our Pato Baptist brothers tell us it's about you and your household, including infants, just remember, they're missing the first century context. They just are, okay? a and is not dung. It's helpful if we go and see what it actually means, right? But you got to do it right. Talking about Jews and Gentiles. We see it again in Romans 11, the one tree from eternity past. It is made one people. What do we see it in John chapter 10? He said, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold Gentiles. Them too, I must bring and there'll be one flock and one shepherd. God only has one people, okay? And that's believers. Old covenant church, New Covenant Church. We all going to be together with God. And it ain't going to be nothing to do with this. Okay? Tell that to the Black Lives Matter uh, idiots today. Okay? Ain't got nothing to do with ethnicity. Okay? If your heart is not circumcised, you're not going to be with God. So, again, this is about the elect. That's who it's about. Okay? And my Baptist brothers, I got to tell y'all, y'all better get that right. Because you'll get sucked into a whole host of air if you don't, okay? So, as I said, it can't mean infants. This text is about the dawn of the new covenant and the Gentile inclusion into it. We got to get that right. We got to get that right. Our Baptist brothers were murdered over this issue, okay? So part of that, like, you know, you get up here and you preach a message. It's like, we're free to say this now. But this message costs a lot of men, a lot of good men, their lives. Okay? And we got to really remember that, man. It's not like we're at war with our Presbyterian brothers. Praise God. Because for a while, it was like Judah and Israel, man. But Baptists were on the receiving side of a lot of harm. Okay? They persecuted us. And, you know, thank God for forgiveness. But, man, sometimes people get really fire and testy over this issue. It's because one side has it right, one side has it wrong. And I'm I'm hopeful you're seeing that God has given us the grace to have this right. So our brothers in Reformed theology, especially who have a Reformed eschatology, they should know better in my mind. okay, This was always plan A. They know the promises. They know the kingdom. They see it in the Old Testament. They see it in the New. We're not dispensationalists. They should know. So I want to kind of flesh this out just a little bit more, and then we'll move on. So it says here, The promises in the scriptures were made to a certain people, right? Who are these people? Well, to believers. But ultimately, the promises are to Christ. You get that? They're to Christ. Okay, we're going to see that. If you even go to Romans chapter 9, we're not going to go there, but mark down verses uh, Romans chapter 9, 6 through 13, you can see very clearly it's not about ethnicity, it's about the promises, right? The promises and who are these promises too. So we're going to look at Galatians chapter three really quick. And I'm just going to read. You don't have to go there, but I'll read this for you. In verse 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So remember I said the promises are to Christ and the seed. All right, well, here it is in verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Hey, okay, what promise? The promise of the hope in God, salvation, okay? It flows out of the covenant of redemption, the promise that the father and son, you know, the, the work of God and the Trinity, okay? that's that, We're not gonna go into that, but the promise in Acts 2.38 is the true Israel. That's who the promise is to the elect, those who have been saved from their sins and those who will be saved from their sins. Those who have been granted faith, repentance and the new birth that cannot include infants because they cannot obviously exercise that. Therefore, that's why we don't baptize infants. Moving along, Matthew chapter three, verses five and six, then This is one of the catechism verses. It says, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Gives us yet another clear picture of who should be baptized. It says that all who went out to the Jordan and were baptized were confessing sins. That involves speaking, right? Okay, so. You can bookmark that for the viper in the diaper fallacy accusation, right? These these vipers can't confess their sins. That's why they shouldn't be baptized. Okay, so I want us to look real quick at one of the earliest uh, church documents. And uh, Brother James White really, uh, listening to his lectures uh, for a while, really helped me, just church history. James White is a very brilliant man. And when you listen to him... um, he don't agree with him on everything, but he's very helpful on a lot of things. So I think he has one of the best modern lectures on baptism. He has like a four part series he did recently at Apologia. And it was really a help to me, you know, in learning a lot of things and just being reminded of a lot of things. So in the this document called uh, the Didache, it was probably dated in the 70s, could have been even in the 60s, but even the skeptics have it in the late 100s. So it was a very early document. And it's important because the early church's practice on baptism matters a lot because Rome heavily persecuted the church and the church didn't, I mean, we look at our modern church, we see we've got a building, we've got people meeting, we have a baptismal. I mean, there wasn't, it's not like how we think. We read our modern times back into that right and that's kind of like what he was saying when i was listening to that lecture i was like wow that's that's a good point you know so when you read and what the didache says a lot of people believe it was the actual teaching of the apostles and when you hear it it doesn't seem it doesn't contradict any of their teaching to me it says um in chapter seven concerning baptism and concerning baptism Baptize this way, having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, in living water. But if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you can, not in cold, in warm. But if you have not either, pour out thrice upon the head into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But before baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whatever others can, but you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. Ain't no babies fasting before getting baptized. It's just not happening. Okay. Sorry, Presby's. Y'all, this has got, you got egg on your face on this one. Okay, even on just what Justin Martyr has said, right? And Doctor White seemed to think he was quoting the Didache. Maybe he was, but he said, "As many as are persuaded and believe that we." Now, I like that how it starts off: "As many as are persuaded and believe." What does that sound like to you, infant baptism or believer's baptism? Believer's baptism. Teach and say is true, and undertake. To be able to live accordingly and are brought to us where there is water and are regenerated in the same manner in which we ourselves are regenerated for in the name of God, the father and the Lord of the universe and our savior, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Then they receive the washing of water for Christ also said, unless you be born again, you shall not inherit the kingdom of he- of heaven. So we see an order, repentance, faith, and baptism. As many as are persuaded and believe, these are the ones Justin Martyr thought should be baptized, right? These details couldn't be more clear. They just couldn't. So even in Acts 12, and I really, you know, I know sometimes we can sit up and cherry pick on the catechisms, but these catechisms were put together like really Really well, like the verses just kind of reinforce believers baptism to the T in my in my understanding. So in Acts eight twelve it says, but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Another crystal clear text. They believed Philip as he preached the things pertaining the kingdom of Christ. And we see here that both men and women were baptized. Where are infants? They're not there. You don't see any example at all. All these examples of baptism, not one of them infants, not one, okay? So again, Acts 8, 36 and 38. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Here we see the eunuch had a desire to be baptized after hearing the gospel. We know this because verse 35, Philip preached Jesus to him. Philip tells the eunuch that faith is a prerequisite to baptism. He said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. After he said, what hinders me? Nothing but faith. That's why we baptize believers. The New Testament couldn't be more clear on this issue. Acts 10, 47 and 48. Can anyone forbid water? That these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Here Peter states that water cannot be forbidden when it comes to baptism. That those who have been regenerated or received the spirit of God, he commanded them to be baptized. And the key part here is they stayed a few days, right? They stayed a few days and asked questions. This can't involve infants. I mean, simple logic tells us that. So going on to question 99, I know that before I read it, I know I've addressed the infant part, you know, and I did that on purpose because as we flow to the end of this, there's, there's some startling <laughs> comments that some theologians who don't even, who weren't even Baptist made that I want to get to. So question 99, it says, are the infants of professing believers to be baptized? Answer, the infants of professing believers are not to be baptized because there is neither command or example in the Holy Scriptures nor reason for them to be baptized. It's not even a reason for them to, other than their tradition. And when you hold tradition up beyond Scripture, you end up with infant baptism. Very simple. Proverbs 36 says, do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Okay? And yeah. Yeah. We're capable of doing that as, as depraved sinners. Adding to the word of God is breaking a clear command from the scriptures. Okay, we hear all the debates, we read all the commentaries, we listen to all the sermons and conclude that Pado Baptists are pretty clever. They're not stupid people. Okay? They're very intellectual and they know how to, you know, dodge their way through a lot of things, but you just can't get around it. Christians should not be practicing this type of baptism. Okay. It causes a lot of chaos when you add to the word of God and how we're to understand the covenants or salvation. It's very problematic. Okay. Martin Luther, this is who I was talking about. He said, we will never have a pure church unless we baptize only those who makes profession, who make professions of faith. That's pretty heavy. I was shocked. I was like, he said that man, that's pretty heavy. Martin Luther said that, but <laughs> he kind of backtracked a little bit because he realized that he needed uh, the support of people who did want to baptize infants on some of his other battlefronts. So he shrunk back to his view on infant baptism, unfortunately. Okay? He even had other things to say about immersion and how baptism should be administered. So it's unfortunate, but he still was a great man of the faith. Even though he didn't stand up on this issue. I mean, God is God is sovereign, you know. I guess we'll find out in heaven what the real reason was, right? But we need we we shouldn't underestimate like the pressure that people have. People get into tradition and they don't really have to have truth. They can just browbeat you into believing something. So we gotta be very careful not to be people pleasers when it comes to truth. You know, we need to have unity in the church, but it needs to be about truth. You know, we can't have this, like, fake kumbaya, this pious unity where we never want to sit down and, and lay one right between a brother's eyes and say, no, you are wrong, man. Let's sit down and let's debate this, you know. It just has to happen. cause causes a lot of damage in churches today when we sing that fake, you know, kumbaya song. I can't stand that song. Um... But when you bring truth, you know, it's like I know football seasons getting ready to start and I I'm a big football fan, but it's like when we used to play on the defense, it was like there was this these coaches used to scream and yell and swear at us because we couldn't get to the ball carriers. But there's kind of like a picture as as one body, we're a people, right? We have to have truth on our side in order to slay in order to conquer in order to prevail in order to see the kingdom expand right so when i was playing football i just remember it was you know those guys were so much bigger than us and you get you get scared you think man this guy's gonna pulverize me right but the technique is what really mattered right when we study our bibles we have to have the correct hermeneutics okay when you get on that football field it doesn't matter if the dude's as big as steven or as big as sam or whoever it is, if you can't get up under those pads and hold the point of attack, you're not going to be able to bury that dude on his back and get to the ball carrier. But when it comes to the right theology, if you don't have the right doctrine, if you've not meditated on the word of God and sought the Lord in prayer, if you've not asked other brothers and sought counsel and gone to the multitude of counselors You're not going to know how to address these issues. You're not going to be able to hold that point of attack when you get into these debates. You're going to get outgunned and outflanked and you're going to get knocked on your back. And that's okay at times. But you got to be willing to get up, dust yourself off and go back to your knees in prayer and come to the Lord and say, Lord. I know that this is wrong. I don't know how to quite articulate it, but have some humility. Admit when you get your behind whooped, go to your pastors, go to your brothers and get some ammo and go back for more, you know, but that, that, that can't involve you just being overcome by fear. I know a lot of us don't share our faith and a lot of us don't debate these issues because we feel like we're not well equipped. Well, I got to tell you something. You got some sharp elders here and you got some sharp brothers at this church. So there's nothing to fear. More importantly, we have a powerful, potent savior, Okay. So, don't back down from these discussions. They have to be had. Okay, they have to be had. So, some other issues that I wanted to address here. Looks like getting late on the time, but got a couple more verses. Or let me see. Sorry, I lost my notes. One second. All right. so the weight of what Martin Martin Luther had said you know that he wanted the church and he realized the need to have a pure church right we got to get these issues right because when we talk about baptism we're talking about covenant okay and when we talk about covenant we're talking about the new covenant and there are some really heavy distinctions that we need to get right i mean there's still things that we carry over. We still have the law of God. Obviously, we still have a savior. We look back to the work of Christ and not forward to it. But when it comes to these issues, I think a lot of our brothers get sucked into it. And then they accuse us as having, oh, Baptists have this weak view of the covenant. That's not true. That's just not true. Okay. So when we get into this discussion about children being a part of the covenant, we need to understand very clearly and precisely what are we saying? My wife and I have six children. Okay? Most of them have made professions of faith. Okay? Some of them have been baptized. But unless those things take place, they are not in the new covenant. Period. Just doesn't, you just don't come into a house and say, well, there goes a family of Christians. They're all in the covenant. No. No, they're not. Some of them may never be in the covenant. Okay. Remember, I told you to go read Romans chapter nine. Part of those texts say for the children, having not been born, haven't done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. If we're Calvinists, we need to understand something. We minister to our children. We witness to our children because God has commanded us to. So we don't get into these arguments where we say, well, why do you teach your children to be Christians? That drives me crazy. I'm like, well, what's the alternative? Should we not? Should we not preach the gospel to them? But when when you get into this stuff, you have to really be very clear. When I say children are not a part of the covenant, I'm saying they're not a part of the covenant community. They're not believers until they profess faith, okay? It's funny how people can scarecrow you into something by just holding this bat over your head and say, if you don't hold to this, you hold to this. It's kind of not how it works. And I hear this question regularly. Are children part of the covenant? Yes, children of God are. Children of God are. If you're not a child of God, you're not a part of the new covenant. Okay, we need to be very careful not to fall into this bad theology. Because Christianity is not some motivational speech. I heard some guy uh, recently as I was watching with some brothers here at church. And he sat up there and told his kids, you don't know who you are. You don't know who you are? And I was like, whoa, man, that is heavy. Could you imagine telling your kids that in family worship? You don't know who you are? we are you just telling them they're a Christian automatically? Where's the gospel in any of that? When you say you don't know who you are, I hope it continues is, I'll tell you who you are. You're a rotten, depraved sinner who needs the grace of God. That's who you are. So I heard some real bad stuff in some pedo circles. I remember when we used to go down to Riddlebarger's church I heard this guy saying, Yeah, well, you know, all of our children are baptized, and now that they're in the covenant, let me tell them what they need to do to remain in it. I was like, Whoa. That's. You want to repeat that? Like, I was like shocked that he said that, right? And they taught this Sunday school on art, and I just remember my wife looking at me, and she elbowed me, and she was like, Why'd you bring me to this Roman Catholic church, right? So. I had to explain to her, no, these are Presbyterians and not Roman Catholics, right? But when you hear stuff like that, it's kind of easy to figure out why a lot of these guys go back to Rome when they say stuff like that. It's hard for people to distinguish these things, okay? So when we tell our kids things at home, it should not be things like that. It should be the time is fulfilled. Christ has come. Repent and believe the gospel, okay? Hebrews chapter 8 plainly tells us, that the law is written on the hearts of the ones who God has been merciful to. That he's been merciful to their unrighteousness and their lawless deeds that he's no longer remembering. They're forgiven. And these are the people who are in the new covenant. These are the people who God has saved. So we need to be very clear on that. The Jews fell into this error in John chapter 8. where Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we've been made free? You know. God rebuked them on that. Galatians chapter 2, the same type of thing. Okay, They trusted in their lineage and their circumcision. And 2,000 years later, we've got people still trusting in baptism, trusting in family trees. Okay, We need to stay away from stuff like this. Hey, last verse here tonight is Luke chapter 3. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him. This is John the Baptist. O generation of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. God doesn't need you, he don't need me. He said, if we won't cry out, the rocks will. Okay, it's very simple. God has to work in us for us to become believers. And those are the people who get baptized. So in conclusion, I can just tell you this. Baptism is a blessing of an authentic confession of faith that publicly demonstrates our union with Christ. In an act of obedience, we are making known that the Lord has added us to the new covenant community by himself, by himself. God has done this. Okay, I love that picture. I always say it. God's Paul Washer said this: God saved you by himself God saved you from himself and God saved you for himself those are the people who get baptized okay but also on the other hand baptism can be a most severe judgment for those who say they are children of light but are not but actually children of the devil. And that's why we shouldn't look at our pastors or anybody else say, man, why is this kid taking so long to be baptized? Or Why is this person taking so long to be? We want to make sure we have credible professions of faith. Okay, We don't want to be like these decisional regeneration. Raise your hand for Jesus. They used to do this at our old church. They'd be like, who doesn't want to go to hell? Everybody going to raise their hand. It's like that ain't even the gospel. Who, who doesn't want to go to hell? It's like some psychological Trap right, and we don't want that kind of stuff. We want people who God has circumcised their heart, you know. Even with my kids, I'm gonna tell you right now adults don't come here just because it's just some cool, like a country club where you get to know people. Right? We come here to worship God, okay? Kids don't get baptized just because mommy and daddy is gonna be happy. You better get baptized because you love God, and He's first loved you. Okay, even the first century people, when uh, in Revelation, when they had this uh, the synagogue of Satan thing, well, you know, He said, "I'll make uh, those who say they are Jews and are not, but they're the synagogue of Satan." There were false converts then, and there's plenty of false converts now. But we want to try to avoid that. We can't see people's heart. Okay, um, I heard. Uh, Pastor Paul was talking about uh, was it Spurgeon earlier about the elect and all that. I think we can't see that, but we can try to discern the best way we can. If somebody makes a pro- credible profession of faith and their life has been changed, they're a new creature in Christ as far as we can tell, then those are the people we want to be placed into the covenant community. Not wolves in sheep, sheep's clothing. Okay, And for those of you who may be in the sign of my voice who Maybe are trusting in something else, like your baptism or like even your church membership. Your your church membership here does not save you. I hope we're clear on that. I came out of a background where they taught if you were a member of this church, you're 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 saved. You ain't going to hell. Well, that ain't true. You need to repent if you if you if you believe that. And just believe what Jesus said when he said, enter by the narrow gate, because broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many that go in by it. But narrow is the way and difficult is the gate that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Okay, If you found that life, then it's because God has shown it to you. Okay, And if you want to be baptized, it's because God has uh, shed his love upon you and showed you your need for Christ. So. There's a hopelessness in this world that is reserved for the wicked. They're always going to believe lies. But praise God, he's given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And I'll take you guys' questions now.
1: I have a question. Yes. Are men still being circumcised today and why? I mean my <laughs> husband, my husband were circumcised and I asked them why. Yeah. We don't know our parents just did it. I mean, is yeah. it just being continually done because the parents they were both Catholics.
0: Yeah, yeah. well I can say yeah. for is that me- why well there's medicinal reasons of circumcision where, you know, they say it's healthier yeah, but, but it as wasn't. a no. Right. But as a Roman Catholic I can tell you that, you know, there was always a talk of circumcision as Roman. So it's kind of like a, I don't want to call it a traditional thing. It's a traditional thing amongst yeah. Catholics. Um, and I think it's also it's like just parents it's prefer everyone's it sometimes. Secular, I mean, it's everyone's. Yeah, it's not just, but she mentioned Catholic specific. And I was an ex-Catholic, so I can speak to that. But I know, yes, there are a lot of people uh, who still do it. I believe Yeah. Judaism still practice, practices it. But there are pagans who get circumcised. So it's it's kind of... It doesn't have the same meaning as it did back then, and I was okay. I was going to talk about that like the circumcision aspect of why did they do in the Old covenant Well we for yeah, so what's that? Nothing. Nothing. Well, man it's only seven thirty bro <laughs> nah, but there's, there's a lot to be said on that yeah
2: I, I wanted to ask a question as far as like in your research trying to contend against the polemic that the Presbyterians would bring that baptism is the New Covenant version of circumcision, how do they make sense of the fact then that only the male babies were circumcised in the Old Covenant? and In the New Covenant, all believers are to be circumcised. Don't they see a disconnect there, and how do they explain that away?
0: They do a lot of gymnastics on stuff like that. Um, I know for a fact that I used to ask my boy, some of those questions, and um, he would try to point to stuff like uh, Galatians 3, and I'd be like, well, this refutes your position, why are you going to this? Oh, there's neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, so they'll go to that text, and then they'll do a few gymnastics, yeah, exactly, they'll lower the boob while you with that, so. i was better that's, that's part of it, right, that's part of it, yeah. Yeah. Better, not just to me, being
3: the covenant signed.
0: But it wasn't even the men, only, I mean, the men got the covenant signed, yeah. but it's not like women weren't in the old covenant. What well, was that's Ruth, right? Not, that's part of what
3: they, the part that they say is better. It's like now men and women both get the covenant
0: signed. That, that's not what makes the new covenant better. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not the
3: only that's thing, not. but it's a better covenant, right? It's not, yeah, I, that, they, I would never think that they would
0: say that's the only thing that makes them good. Obviously, it's Christ that makes them good. Yeah, we get into some pretty big name calling. I was, I say, man, you must have been the 84 Olympics with Mary Lou Retton with them gymnastics, boy. Because that's, that's just some gymnastics. That's not even, I don't know, Paul probably know a better answer than I would, but that's just, to me, it's whack. So, the, we'll stick with
1: the Presbyterian Church for now, and so they believe in baptizing infants, and to them, it's a matter of of, of a regenerational baptism. This is something... No. So no. That?
0: no, the orthodox ones do not say that. they. So, and
1: so what type of baptism
0: is it? Covenant baptism. They believe that they misinterpret Acts 2, the promises to you and your children, and they say that, or they'll go to that other text where it says that he and his house, you and your household, right? right. The baptism part, and they'll say well, you guys are assuming that there's no infants there. And I'm like, well, we turn around and say, well, you're assuming there are, right? Are you assuming they didn't make a profession of faith, right? So they really, it's just gymnastics. I mean, but they, they try to stay faithful where they really do think that the continuity between the New Testament and the old continues. Baptism has replaced circumcision and the people of God and the kingdom of God grow. Like we just had a guy... Stephen was showing me that said that transgenderism in society is because it's, it's, it's Baptist fault. And I was like, man, I'm glad you showing me. I'm, ooh, if it was later in the night, I might have threw something on my TV. <laughs> I was just like, dude, I can just guy get up here and say this. So, uh,
1: actually, uh, where I was going with this, maybe I shouldn't bring up Presbyterian, but there is there is a group of people that believe in regenerational baptism that the baptism is what saves them so what does that same group of people say of spirit baptism which is salvific
0: they will twist those verses like for instance uh, I have a Lutheran buddy and he gets on his Facebook probably two, three times a day, and he says, say it with me, saints, baptism saves, and he always goes to 1 Peter 3, and then he'll go to Romans chapter 6, so they really are blinded, you know, by God, that they really believe that those texts are teaching that they need to be baptized in order to walk in newness of life, in Romans chapter 6, and they believe that they need to be baptized in order to be saved, in 1 Peter 3, Three, but they kind of skip breaking down the part that says this in Antitype and the waters of Noah, and the spirits and the the prison. You know, they they just they they really like any false teaching. They but just one, mix one, up one, the I agree text. With this,
1: that, that there are three baptisms explicitly uh, cited in the Bible. There's yeah. the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance, but not a salvific baptism, but one being basically immersed in their repentance, then there would be Holy Spirit. And and that is something that was only done at a point in time back in the day of of John the Baptist. Then there's spirit baptism, which I'll just read uh, Matthew chapter 3, where, uh, as John the Baptist was baptizing, uh, and this is after he says, You brood of vipers, to the Pharisees that showed up, he says, I baptize you with the water, or he's talking to people that he's baptizing. I baptize you with water for repentance. So that's your a repentance baptism that is not done today, uh, to my knowledge. But he who is coming after me is mightier than. Than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, this is Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire that will be a salvific, supernatural, baptism invisible in the baptism. Uh, his winnowing fork in his hand, he will clear his threshing floor gathers gather his wheat into the barn, the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So there's that baptism, and then... Chronologically, the water baptism would follow after spirit baptism. The visible, physical baptism into the the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, that physical baptism, has to come after spirit baptism. Mm -hmm. So people that believe in this regenerational baptism, what on earth do they do about spirit baptism, which has to precede this physical regenerational baptism? Which one is?
0: Which well, one is salvific? I think it's clear to you and me, brother, because in us in this room, because we're not deceived, we've received grace on this under, on this teaching, right? But I think that they make it synonymous. So where they miss the boat is is that they think that baptism is necessary, or else you won't have the baptism of the Spirit if you don't go down into the water. They really confuse the texts and they lump them together. I think there's one other baptism. Pastor Paul probably knows again better than me or Nick. There was one in the Old Testament, I can't remember the kind of baptism, it was like a washing, but it wasn't the same. But there's some people who believe that the there's baptism a of John is uh, proof of a Presbyterian baptism, or Titus 3 is a Presbyterian text they'll use, so it's really strange.
1: What is the uh, baby, the infant baptism, what is, is it symbolic, or is there something supernatural tied
0: they believe, are you, if you're talking about for the Orthodox Christians who are our brothers, they will heavily say that it is a covenant baptism that we are commanded to baptize our households. Right? Just what take.
1: Is that accomplished through immersion, a covenant?
2: It would be considered a sign, right? Yeah, it would it's be a considered not, a sign. It's not like a magical spiritual thing that happens to the child when you baptize an infant. Orthodox brothers would believe this is a sign that that child's now connected to the covenant. And, you know, they'll go to different lengths to say
0: whether that, how how connected they are, you know? And they'll go to 1
2: Corinthians too. Is that say, well, guarantee salvation?
1: No.
0: no, they'll go to 1 Corinthians 7, and they will say, they'll bring up the dynamic between the the believing uh, spouse and the unbelieving spouse, and they'll say, if one of the spouses is saved, then the children are Hagio, Hagio I think it is, and, yeah, and yeah, that they're holy, right? And so they'll say, oh, this presents a problem for you, Baptists. You shine away from these texts because you don't believe that, you know, this baptism is a covenant sign. Therefore, you don't believe that your children are holy. But then they start going into other, the ones that stop right there in, in their error, are the ones that, you know, I listen to it because I know that they're wrong. But the ones that keep going are the ones that scare me. So, Stephen, I think... Paul, you going to say something?
4: If I, to add just a little bit, I think what Presbyterians tend to do, maybe a little bit better than Baptists in general, especially over the last 100, 150, 200 years, is that they'll emphasize God's work in baptism as a means of grace. And so they'll highlight the fact that it's a promise to the child for their salvation, what God will do. Whereas we, we, we want to permit what to... Does that mean? That God has promised to wash and save them from their sins. And so what they'll say is so they apply to everyone in the new covenant. is. So what they'll do is they'll have a disposition of like generosity or charity towards them, just believing that they are saved until they show themselves to not be saved. And so they'll go through catechism or platform. That, that that's what so they don't admit them to the table right away, at the Lord's table. They'll wait until they're older and they have some sort of fruits and signs of a true profession. There's like a super
1: dedication, not a dedication. Almost, yeah, <laughs> dedication <laughs> <Super> it <dedication. dedication. laughs>
4: <laughs> really is hinged upon and based upon the promise that God makes in baptism to wash and cleanse us. What is what the what is the sign of? And so they, they assume them to be saved until they're not saved. But you know you push them on that then they'll say, no, they're not actually saved. But there is a general like disposition of uh, Granting them, not status. So I don't I've even add to the not the president
3: I listen to. Now maybe it's a difference, I don't know. Because you know, like I know Paul, we can talk about this, but the the one covenant, you know, several administrations kind of view. Uh-huh. So they believe that the new covenant is another administration of the covenant of grace, right? So they don't necessarily make the two the same. Right? They're not synonymous, right? So the new covenant is not necessarily the covenant of grace. So, you know, um, you can, that's why we look at a lot of, like Paul talked about earlier, the warning passages, right? They'll look at those and say, look, they said that, you know, the Father prunes those who who are in me that don't bear fruit, right? Well, they'll say, well, in some way, he was in, they were in Christ, and they've been removed, right? So they, they use it, they separate the new covenant. They'll say that the new covenant is, is, uh, there's not necessarily the elect, right? the covenant of grace is the elect
0: right but they mess up the new covenant they'll say the covenant of works you can be in the covenant of works and the covenant of grace essentially when they baptize them they to me i think they conflate that unless i'm missing something uh, I figure, right? so you
4: were even saying you were talking about how it's covenant of baptism so for presbyterians they can have people in the new covenant that they they know aren't saved right? whereas we as baptists don't want to do that we we try okay. to only baptize people who who
0: show a, pre- a credible profession of
4: faith. Amen. You see the new covenant as with
0: the covenant. Amen. Just and a
2: little point of detail is they wouldn't say that they know that they're not saved, but they would say that they're that they don't know if they are saved or not. Right. They're not like willfully accepting people to the table who are not saved. Yeah. But they just they're okay with having people they're not sure about being in the covenant yet in the covenant. Whereas the Baptist point of view makes every effort to try to avoid that by trying to see the true signs of belief in a person before baptism
0: is administered to them. Well can I say this though? It's not monolithic either, because when I from some of my Presbyterian buddies, like Paul was saying, they will say you are baptized in the covenant, and they will assume their kids saved until they see otherwise when they grow up professing faith, right? But one of the things that blows me away, like Paul was touching on, is <laughs> so they baptize them into this covenant, but they don't give them the Lord. They have a closed communion. So, but the ones that are consistent, and I, I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. If this goes to the federal vision. Those are the ones who will give them the table even before they've even professed faith, and and so that's the part. Some of this stuff scares me because it just reminds me of my upbringing as a Roman Catholic. I'm just thinking, man, you guys are playing around with fire. When you start messing around with this kind of stuff. The thing
4: for the federal visionists and those those Presbyterians who do want to put an extra emphasis on it is that they actually, they'll take, so remember I was talking before that
0: that the sacraments work ex operata? Yes.
4: So they'll say that the sacraments, and Lutherans make this error too, the sacraments of the waters actually have something in it by which God is imparting grace do that. It's not necessary to have faith in an individual. It's the sacrament itself that's doing something. So that's where like yeah the CREC, the crack guys, federal mm-hmm. the they um it's really iffy waters about, you know, are we what are we actually talking about here as far as who's in the covenant? Because their covenantal inclusion is almost to the point of where they're they're actually truly a part of Christ. And then they understand too that people will fall away so
1: then you have people losing their salvation so it's really it's complex it's it gets pretty difficult well along those it lines it, it just kind of leads me to a like an editorial comment subjective comment and when I think about uh, uh, it's better to be hot or cold when you're lukewarm I'll, you know I'll spew you out um, the the reformed Baptist approach seems to put a focus on you you need to know your position with God and don't assume that you're in so to speak Mm -hmm. but when you go do this baptism where your parents are saying you know so we're going to treat you like you're in like you're saved, Uh, Mm. we'll figure things out later, it seems like there comes a danger
0: of
1: not seeking God for who he is and how he sees you and what he is or is not doing in your life. It seems like you could go to sleep at the wheel thinking you're good. You yeah, know, I behave well, my parents baptized me. Yeah, um, I should be good to go. And
0: well, I don't, don't want
1: to do anything else, I don't have to look for anything, I don't have to uh examine myself. Uh, whatever, it's, it's just it, like I say, it's an editorial comment, this is not a <laughs> No, I think what you're saying is,
0: it's 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 very is, I I, I think what you're saying, I don't want to get too jabby on this issue, but I'll say that I remember when I went to, um, Ruth and I went to Riddlebarger's church for like three years in a row on on, um, Resurrection Day. And so I was really excited. I was just learning, you know, he learned a lot from him, right, through his radio ministry. So when I got to meet him, I was really excited. Kim Riddlebarger. And in the process of just three summers, we watched a massive exodus of people leaving that church. And I was asking his son and like one of the other elders I was like, wasn't there a whole section of people in this group right here? It was like, you guys lost a big chunk of people. And he was scratching his head and just like in what he was saying and just literally scratching his head like, man, I can't explain it. He said they all went they all went back to Rome. I said, they became synergists? He said, no, they went to Roman Catholic churches. And then I was like, hmm. So I had some of these discussions with some of my friends. And I think that the error that this stuff causes, like you said, when you baptize them and you just kind of teach them, the gospel gets lost. And then you start teaching them this moralism. And then this moralism becomes their salvation. And you hear comments like, now that you're in the covenant, here's what you got to do to remain in it. And Christ isn't in any of that. And so then they're like, well, why don't we just go over here and let the priest confess our sins for us?" Then, As long as we're not cheating on our wives and any of that, we ain't going to hell. We're going to remain in the covenant. It's ended up, it's just bad stuff. And then I ain't going to get into it, but we can get into the other debates later about.
1: same sounds like from what you're saying, it could lead to like a works, a works for an
0: Yeah. No doubt. I man. have to work. I have to make the decision. I,
1: I, I, I have to do this. But once I do this, then God owes me.
0: And yeah, God will reward me with salvation for my right, obedience, right? right? I mean, that's scary stuff. Yeah, and I, scary Well, I think this is why, like in this study, the blessing to me was to become, just be reminded of why I'm a Baptist, right? It's like, I feel like, you know, messing around with a bunch of brothers who, when you, when brothers are there for you in a, in a, time of distress you can tend to overlook some things that you shouldn't and this is one of them i mean you know i ain't gonna say it's like one of those no surrender no retreat no retreat type things but in a sense it is when people start going too far with this stuff the gospel gets compromised and you know we can't compromise the gospel so you know and then again you know we have
2: to say the charitable heart and acknowledge that the presbyterians that recognize they thought this through they see the weakness of their position the potential of it you're, you're probably going to see within them a stronger effort to urge their children on to faith in christ young and not to just let it be this whole oh you're just already already in here let's drop our guard kind of mentality they're going to work against that and hopefully counteract some of the, the potential error that can come from thinking yeah. that way but you know, i think it's just better to start with the right theology in the first place and amen to a Baptist
0: position believers Baptist. Well, and it makes me grateful for MacArthur and Spro. I mean, the years that they worked together, but I, I mean, I understand like, you know, if you've got a weak position then you know, I've heard people say you shouldn't even be, you're unequally yoked if you marry a Presbyterian. I'm like, ooh, it's like, you're unequally yoked if you marry a Baptist. I've heard people saying that and I'm like, man, that's pretty rough. So, you know, but these are, these are, fiery issues. Like I said, people were murdered over them. So all right, well appreciate all the questions and yep.